long the service is. <laughs> so everyone should panic right now. <laughs> oh goodness. Um, well, we are uh, all right. It's 25 on the clock on my uh, on my on my timer here. So we'll see we'll see how that goes. Um, so let's pray uh, in preparation for the message, and we'll we'll uh, we'll we'll get started here this morning. Um, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help me to be uh, faithful to to your scriptures as I as I bring the word today. I pray that you would help me to um, just point to Christ over and over again to to um, salvation to the gospel. Um, Lord God, I I pray that you would um, would speak into the hearts and minds of the folks who are here. That you would um, that you would just just move in us that we would know you more. That we would. That we would come to to know Christ as our Lord, as 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 our everything, um, Father. I pray that you would um, just make it clear in everything that 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 comes out of my mouth, Lord, and everything that people hear today that that you are the Lord who saves us in Christ's name, Amen. So we are continuing to work through Psalms, and uh, John challenged me last week after worship to do the entire Psalm 18 in one sitting. Uh, but I decided I'm too cowardly to attempt it because it is incredibly long. And so we're going to break it up into little bits. So this is part one. Um, I actually did think about doing it all at once, but I, I realized there was no way that I was going to be able to do that in under an hour. Um, so uh, I, will, I will do my best with what we've got, um, but this is going to be a multiple parter. Um, before I dive into that, I want to kind of, I, I always try to come up with illustrations to, to kind of get the essence of what we're talking about. Um, and this psalm is a psalm of praise, and it is, um, it's kind of a psalm of rescue. And, and I, I was trying to think of sort of something that captures it, um, like the essence of what's going on here. And, and there are a couple of examples I came up with, but my favorite one that I kept coming back to over and over again um, when I was a little kid, about Titus's age, right, uh, and, and I maybe a little older than him, and I had a little brother. Uh, I have a little brother. His name is Peter. Um, he is the, the successful child, um, and we'll see if he watches the sermons. We'll see if, you know. Um, but he and I, when we were really little kids, every Saturday night, we would watch professional wrestling, and it was one of the most exciting parts of our week. And we would talk about it for days building up to it. And I, I think it was just, it's the little kid and like everything is so over the top and ridiculous. The heroes are so good and the bad guys are so bad. And it doesn't even make sense. And, you know, like, like these guys are also, they're superhuman strong. And they're, you know, they're all of these things that little boys just kind of, you know, just we were excited about it. And we would... We would talk about it for days, and we'd watch it, and then we'd talk about it for days again. And I think my parents were sick to death of it by the end. Um, and now I kind of we, we trade texts about it sometimes too, like making fun of that era of our lives and and uh, the silliness of it. But I, I remember one of the recurring tropes in these in these uh, in these shows is you would have a good guy who would get in trouble because two or three bad guys would gang up on him and they'd beat him up and you'd watch. And I remember as a little kid being like, no, somebody say, you know, and you're just excited. And then all of a sudden the music would come on. I can't possibly be the only one in the room who ever watched this. And like the good guy wrestler would come running to the ringside and like he would beat up like eight guys, unreasonably so. 
And, and it would be this like huge rescue moment with the music and the charge and the crowd going nuts. And I remember my kid brother and I like jumping up and down on, on my parents' bed because they had the TV we'd watch on. And we, you know, yeah, you know, and it was so exciting. And like, as we get into this psalm, this is a psalm of deliverance. And the imagery that David, who, um, who, who wrote the psalm, like, the imagery David uses is huge. Right, and it's it's so big that he doesn't even actually stick with traditional Jewish imagery. It's one of those instances where he draws out of pagan images, like things that pagans would use to describe their gods, to kind of because it's so over the top and huge, and it's actually a great song because of it. And so as we get into this, I I want to present to you like this idea that this is the ultimate hero rescue showing up moment. Like in, in the Psalms. This is like the, the, the ultimate moment in this. And, and so as we get into it, just keep it in mind, this is a rescue. This is a, a hero showing up in the last possible moment. Um, there's a million action movies that I could have talked about. Like I, I kept going back and forth, but this is, well, you'll see as we go. Real quick, this is, um, at the end of a series of psalms about deliverance, and all the preceding ones are about being delivered or rescued in some way or another, and this is a praise for deliverance has been like brought about. Um, it is specifically, um, it, it shows up in the book of Second uh, Samuel, uh, where, and I think that's in uh, verses for the week, where where um, David sings this psalm of praise for deliverance from Saul. Like at the end of the whole Saul story, like he sings this song as, as, a, as a praising God for the deliverance he's received at the end of this long ordeal where he's had to go, on, go into hiding and he's hidden in caves and run and gone and lived amongst his enemies. And, and then there's this huge war that happens between the Philistines and the Jews and, and like this great thing that happens. And then David is returned and like, and like made king. And, and David sings this praise at the end of that. This is at the end of a long, multi-year saga in David's life um, that, that shaped a great deal about who he was. And so this is um, like sort of this, this ultimate moment of this. There's a lot of imagery in this that, are, that is fun. Psalms as a genre tends to use a lot of imagery, tends to use a lot of symbolism or a lot of uh, like, like poetic language. There's actually three or four poems written into this psalm. Um, we're not going to spend as much time like dissecting the form, uh, but it is really fun stuff. Um, it is a it is a brilliant work, like from the ancient world, like amongst the top in the scriptures. Like so, as we dive into it, we're starting one and two. Um, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So Psalm 18 starts out with this like immediate praise, and every word used to describe God, I mean, look at what they are. They're rock, right, stronghold, fortress, strength, shield, horn, and deliver. I mean, these are big you know, they are big, powerful words. And the idea is God is, God is not weak. Like God does not lack the ability. Um, there's some interesting stuff in the language here I want to touch on real quick before we go forward. Um, this idea that God is his strength. Um, he calls him rock twice. Did you notice that? You know, and it seems kind of like a weird phrasing. Like, you know, you ever listen to a chorus of a song and they use a word 
twice, and you think, well, couldn't you have just gotten the thesaurus out, buddy? Like, what, what is this? In reality, this is two different words. And it's one of those oddball spots where English doesn't have strong equivalents, so they just said rock twice. And just about every translation does this for whatever reason. Um, but the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. Um, that first rock means like like a lofty place where you're protected. Uh, the example of this that, that several commentaries I, I read pointed out was Masada. Masada is a castle built on a mountain in the middle of a desert. It is it was considered to be the most impregnable fortress in Israel all the way up until the Romans knocked the walls down and, and like set the place on fire. And Anyway, but it took them years to do it. Um, it, it is... Uh, Oftentimes this word is used to reference where, like, by the Sea of Galilee, there's a cliff that runs along the Roman road, and there are caves all along the cliff. And that that would be, like, these caves, the rebels would climb down and hide in the caves because, number one, nobody's ever going to find you there, right? And number two, if they did find you, what are they going to do about it, right? Like, because there's a cliff, except that the Romans threw boulders on chains down and smashed the caves and killed everybody when they hid in there during the rebellion. I mean, like, like for the most part, there is no hiding place that is an earthly hiding place that works, um, which is a great contrast between what he's talking about, where God is his fortress. God is his deliverer. Um, Masada fell. Um, Rome ultimately fell. Uh, Babylon fell. The Philistines like disappeared. Like every every strength, every every power in this world is passing, except for God, who is this lofty place, this natural feature that is unassaultable. Um, and as we go into this, I wanna I wanna make it clear. This is what David is talking about. He is talking about a God that it doesn't matter how messed up your situation is. doesn't matter how broken. doesn't matter how powerful your enemies are. doesn't matter how death seems to be kicking in your door. Like, he is there. Um, my God is my rock in whom I take, take refuge. This second reference would be a reference to, like, a boulder. Um, and I actually, in the next uh, slide, I got a little more about that. But the idea here being that that he is this firm place to take a stand. Um, this, he, I have the high ground, right? Um, God is this place that protects um, and gives us strength by merit of being who he is. Um, but it's not the same word. Uh, my shield and the horn of my salvation. Uh, the horn of my salvation is a recurring phrase used in the, in the scriptures. I was with Larry the other day um, riding on the bucket while Larry drove the swather. And... <laughs> I was in the cab. He didn't make me ride outside. And we are, we are cutting through weeds, lots and lots of weeds. And in the midst of a large group of, I think they were Canadian thistles. They were huge. Was that the thistles? Um, there were these funny little branches sticking up. Two sets, or four sets of them. And I, they caught my eye and said, oh, look, 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 look. And these two deer jumped out, and the one was like a 30-point buck. I mean, Larry was right there. He'll attest. I was going to shoot him, but um, when, when you see these deer, though, like it's, it's easy to forget that these, these horns, they exist for one purpose alone, and that is tearing up the guy next to you, right? Um, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure bulls are dangerous, but I'm sure they're a whole lot dang, more dangerous when they're longhorns. 
Fair enough. Like, cause the horns, like, like when the scriptures talk about horns, they're talking about this powerful thing that is built in and makes an animal more dangerous. Um, I, I, I watched a video on YouTube the other day of a guy trying to fight a deer. Like, he set out to fight a deer. And it was awful. Like, <laughs> it was, it was very high on the list of really bad choices. Um, because the deer kicked him a whole lot, but the deer also has horns and they don't look that dangerous until like he drops his head down and tosses you right and then they're dangerous this horn you are my the horn of my salvation meaning like you are the one who comes and rescues me you're the one who charges out and like like protects me all of the imagery here is either of like a strong defense or a strong offense and god is is presented as both um it's significant by the way that david sang this song right after winning this huge military victory, the kind of thing where you would read the, the ancient uh, kings and they would talk about the, how awesome the king was. And David instead turns and points to God and he says, he is my strength, he is my deliverer, he is my fortress, he is my rock, he is the horn of my salvation, he is my stronghold, he is the one who kept me safe all of this time. Um, so we're going to do some uh, application here as we go. This is the grow thing. This is part of what we're going to be doing with discipleship going forward. And so... Um, like, as we look at this, like, the four elements of spiritual growth begin with giving things to God, like, allowing God to be in control. And, and as David does in this situation, we have to do the same. We have to recognize, recognize that, like, God is our salvation. Like, the first step to spiritual growth, the first step to becoming, like, a mature believer and a mature follower of Christ is recognizing that he is, he is, he is it. You know, like I, I, it makes me sick. I watch folks who look at, at political influence or they look at money or they look at, you know, the rightness of, of their perspective or, or how much smarter they are than everyone else or, or whatever. And these things are the things that are their salvation that will create security or whatever. And in reality, those things are passing. In the same way as Masada was never going to save the Jewish folks, like the, the Jewish rebels when they hid there, and, and the mountain cliffs were never going to protect them, and ultimately Rome's armies wasn't going to save them. Um, our own stuff will not save us. It won't save us in our situation, and it will not save us from our sins. Like, you can never be good enough. You can never be better than the next guy enough. You can never be self-righteous enough. None of it. You can never, ever be more holy than the jerk in the pew next to you or behind you or whatever. Like, you can never manage that well enough. Only God is our salvation, and specifically only Christ, because Christ, Christ was perfect. He is God's stepping into this world to die for our sins, um, answer, to our, to our lostness. Like, and only in Christ is there salvation. Only in Christ. And, and it's easy to forget. Now, it isn't to say that the stuff, like, in this world, you know, David had an army. Um, David carried a sword. Um, David used a sling to slay Goliath. But, like, at the end of the day, those things are nothing without God on our team, without God lining up with us. And, and I'm going to tell you, your good works, they may serve a purpose in the moment, but they will not save you. Um, they may be evidence of Christ in you, but they will not save you. Um, one of the things that this drew out in my mind is the parable of the wise and the foolish builder. We all know this one, right? Two men built a house, one on the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. Yeah, like the, the story. And, and 
as we transition away from the original context and into like the, the story of Christ and into our lives, we can see where um, Christ presents us. Look, there are two kinds of builders. There are the ones who hear my words and do their own thing. And there are the ones who hear my words and build their lives upon my teachings. There are people who make Christ the boss and follow his way and follow him as savior. And those are folks who are building on a rock. And specifically, like, like whose, whose place within Christ is a fortress. Like for whom Christ is a deliverer. For whom, like, like he is a refuge. That is, that is kind of, I don't know if we're going to apply this. Like, like we need to understand that Christ is that kind of salvation. Um, Christ is a far better salvation than Smith and Wesson. Um, Christ is a far better salvation than than a couple dozen Supreme Court justices ever could be. Christ is the salvation that delivers us, that delivers us for eternity. The life we live now is a blink of the eye. Like, it is a breath. It is, I, I saw a sermon once where a guy took a spray bottle, and he missed it, and he said, this is kind of the idea here. You know, everything is passing. You know, and it's like that. It's nothing. Um, next to Christ. Next to Jesus in us, next to Jesus changing us. Um, there's a point in the uh, in the Gospel of John where John gives the account of um, Christ uh, talking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, and a bunch of people are like, "Well, you're nuts," and they left. Um, and so, picking up there in John, um, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Um, I, I included this because it's important to understand. Um, Christ is that kind of salvation. There's nowhere else to go. There just isn't. There's nowhere else to go. There is no self-actualization. There is no um, self-righteousness. There is no learning or wisdom or anything. Christ is it. Like He is the words of eternal life. He is the direction, the gate, the narrow path. Like Christ is what saves us. And so as we go forward, understand like everything in this psalm ultimately points to Christ. Um, so now here's the fun part. I called out to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I have been saved from my enemies. The cords of death entangled me. Sorry, not quite to the fun part. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me, and the snares of death confronted me. Um, The image here is really strong, and I totally love this, this idea of, like, getting wrapped up in cords. Um, I, I read Watership Down a few years ago. And, and over and over again in this great book, like it's about rabbits, and the rabbits talk about the snares and how the snares suffocate you. You know, like once it's around you, it's over. There's no escaping it. And the air is slowly forced out of your body. And the, the, your airways are closed off and you're strangled. Um, that there is no escape once that happens. And if you can, I don't know if you've ever walked through heavy brush and gotten like those long thorn things wrapped around your legs. And you can't move forward anymore because you're just holding on to you. Or actually probably a better analogy for Montana is mud. Um, my first few weeks here, I went fishing with someone down on the river. And I was wearing knee-high boots. And I remember stepping out and sinking in over my boots and then trying to pull away. And I, I pulled away, but my boot didn't. 
And so I'm standing there in my sock trying to pull my boot out of the mud. Um, and actually, I think I have photos of mud up to my knee. Um, the idea here is that, that death, that his enemies have so wrapped around him that they're just dragging him down. That death is the only option. Um, that death is, is it. I mean, like he is, he is literally just being dragged to the grave. Um, anybody ever feel that way? <laughs> like where you look at, you look at the brokenness in the world around you. Honestly, this whole week I, I, uh, I have been kind of depressed and I'm reading this, this Psalm at work, but then I'm also watching like how broken things are in the world around me, how broken the people are, how broken our perspectives are, how sinful the church has gotten in some places, how, how, um, destitute we sometimes like become like how how messed up the world is and i i found myself in this spot where i'm looking at all of this and just getting depressed and i i read this psalm one evening after i got home from work i said well i'm going to read through this again before i call it a day and i'm reading through it and this this image grabbed me like there are times when the world is so broken and so messed up it seems like you will never get away from it and and it becomes this constant focus um, I had a cat when I was a kid who got her collar caught up in the ca- uh, carpet. And I remember watching her collar just got tangled in the carpet fibers. And she pulled back as far as she could and just held there for like eight minutes. And that was all she could look at was this little in the carpet fiber around her collar. And finally I got up and I, I kind of unhooked her and... She disappeared, right? But she focused on that. Like, that was it. I'm caught on this thing, and I don't know how to get out. Um, this is the idea here. So as we go into um, repent and renew, uh, our, our, um, as if we're going to grow spiritually, oftentimes like we need to recognize that the cords that ensnare us are, are of our own making. Right? Like, like sin that wraps us up and drags us in um, a lot of times it's our sin. Like the brokenness of the world that, that kills us is our own. You know, our own bitterness toward the people around us, our own self-indulgence, our own lust, our own um, selfishness, our own hatred of our neighbor, our own whatever, like like, like our prejudices, our, our, our like past resentments that pile up. Like, like the sin that ensnares us is that. Um, I have uh, stretches in my life where I go around angry all day, every day. Anybody do that? And and at the end of the day, like, I always come to this point where I'm like, oh, yeah, this is all me. You know, I choose how I react. I choose how I respond. I choose what I do with all of this. And I'm choosing to be angry and to pour gas on the fire of my anger. Um, Paul says it really well in Romans 7. He says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. The phrase there, this, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death, is oftentimes translated, who will rescue me from this body of death. And the, uh, the ancient image, which is not contemporary to the Romans, but was legendary amongst the Romans when Paul was writing this, it was a huge, crazy story, was of this ancient king who would punish his enemies by tying dead bodies to them. And forcing them to walk around with dead bodies tied to them until they rotted through with the decay that ran through the whole thing. And like what Paul is saying here is, my own self is like this body of death. Like I'm tied to this sinful self. And it's a chain I can't cut or break away from. And I am just going to die from it. And I am wretched. 
I am broken. I am miserable because I cannot get away from my own sin. This is right at the end of him saying the good I want to do is not what I do, but the evil that I hate is what I do. Um, Over and over again, in every possible way, I try to do the right thing and I do wicked. I hate evil and I still do evil. Um, As we look at the cords that ensnare us, oftentimes this is what they are. They are us. Um, the greatest act of salvation we see in the scriptures isn't God throwing fireballs on Mount Carmel or wiping out King Saul or, or you know, saving the Israelites from the Babylonians or, or anything of the sort. Like, it's none of that. The greatest salvation that we see, the greatest God-charging-in-and-rescuing moment happens with Christ. So when the time was right, Christ came, Right? Anybody ever watch The Lone Ranger? Oh, the best part of The Lone Ranger is when you hear that trumpet moment, you know? The good guy has been tied to the, or the, the, the maiden has been tied to the train tracks. I haven't watched The Lone Ranger since I was a little kid, except for that awful Disney movie, and no one rescued us from that. So, <laughs> but that makes Tonto a Disney princess. Um, <laughs> the... Uh, <laughs> The, 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 you know, poor victim has been tied to the train tracks and the guy in the black cowboy hat is standing there and he's, ah, and twirling his mustache. And I know that never happened in the Lone Ranger. I'm ad living here. Snidely whiplash, yes. And then the horn would combine and it would be that, that, uh, William Tell overture. And from the hills, you know, you'd see the Lone Ranger riding in on Trigger? Or is that? Wrong horse. So what is it? Silver. silver. And he's, hi ho, silver, away. Yeah, and he comes charging in in this moment. And so he calls out to God in his distress. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help from his temple. He heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. The earth trembled and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. And so... It begins, and God's anger is so severe at the affront against his people that the earth shakes, that, that the ground, like, I've never been in an earthquake. I think I've slept through quite a few of them, actually, from what I understand, but I've never been in one. My understanding is that there's very little in the world more disconcerting than waking up and discovering that everything is not staying still. You know, that pictures are falling and the roof is cracking and, and maybe the world, earth opens up or whatever. But like this, uh, God's anger at the affront against his, his man, against righteousness, against good. Um, I would argue that against, like, injustice against the helpless and the weak is an example of what we're seeing here. Like this anger shakes the earth. And how do we work this in? Like, what do we do with this before we get into the really fun part? Um, We call out to God when we need him. Um, This is the beginning of knowing him as our deliverer and savior. Like when we turn to him and ask, God, help me. God, I am drowning here. Help me. God, this problem I created is killing me. God, these people are messing with me and I cannot get over it. My anger, my bitterness, my addiction, my sin, my my whatever, like this brokenness that I've made of my life, turning and calling to God for help is the beginning of it. And God answers, and he answers in huge ways. Sometimes it's not in huge like, oh, wow, the neighbor is messing with me. 
Um, and so the earth is going to shake and like lightning bolts are going to kill him. Um, sometimes it's, it's something very different. Sometimes it's, it's honestly shaking the foundations that I thought were everything in my own little world. Sometimes it's the beginning of, of, I remember once actually I was praying, I had a guy who I was fighting with at work and I'd been fighting with him for months and I, uh, I just was so angry every day coming home from work. I was furious at him all the time and I went for a walk one afternoon and I said, all right, God, I need you to like deal with this person. Deal with him. I, I don't know, care what you do, I want you to squish him. I, I want you to help him to know that you are God and that you're in charge and he needs to do right because you are God. And like this weird little thought came to me. I thought, does this guy see Jesus when he looks at me? Maybe I'm how he's being dealt with. And I'm screwing it up because I'm doing it my way instead of his. And I felt very ashamed of myself. And my own little world got shaken. And I spent the next several months looking for every way I possibly could to serve him and show him Jesus' love. And when he acted like a big jerk to me, I tried to love him more. And then when I didn't feel like doing it, I found new ways. I worked on the guy's car as a favor for nothing because he couldn't afford to get it fixed and he had no way to get to work anymore. I, I did parts of his job. I came up with everything I could possibly do because I said, I'm going to be Jesus to this guy. And amazingly, it worked. God shook the foundations of my world because I was the bad guy and didn't realize it. Um, but we have to go and ask him for vision. We have to go and ask him for clarity, for, for awareness. And part of this is we have to ask him to help us. You know, God, help me, help me know what to do here. Help me to not be bitter. Help me to forgive. Help me to serve. Help me to love. Help me to be rescued from my own wickedness, from the snares that entangle me. Um, and we have to orient, orient our lives around the fact that he is our rock. Like, and we have to build our lives on that. If we're going to work it in, this means knowing it. We have to know Christ's teachings. We have to know his word. We have to know what he calls us to and then live it out. This is from Matthew. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by the flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. That on this rock is not a reference to Peter. It's not a reference to, you know, like all kinds of things the church has tried to make it into. It's the confession that Christ is the Son of God. Um, Peter decided he was going to build his life in this direction. You are Christ. I'm following you. I'm going to do this. Christ says, that's the rock. Like, know who I am and build on that. Act like it's true. Live like it's true. Be different like it's true. Don't ignore me. I am your salvation. If I'm going long, I'm sorry. I have no idea. It's like 10 till. It's been 10 till for the last half hour. Um, <laughs> smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. Wow. Right? Uh, last night I was laying in bed. Um, and I was reading a book, and my wife was asleep, and I heard these footsteps, and the footsteps came at about 9 o'clock. You guys know what happened at 9 o'clock? Thunder. Big, loud crack of thunder, and I heard tiny little footsteps. 
and I laid in bed and thought, I wonder if I could wake Jess up. <laughs> and the door burst open, and Titus stood there, and, Dad! <laughs> and he gave me a long list of things that were of dire emergency. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I didn't look anything like this, but I charged out and took care of all of this stuff that he thought. I didn't charge. I ambled and grumbled a lot. Um, but I'm sure from his point of view, he was running and dad was going to come and breathe fire. By the way, breathing smoke is supposed to point to otherworldliness. It's like God is big and he is powerful and he is ticked off and he is not like us. He breathes smoke. It's not like he's a dragon. I know. <laughs> no dragoning happening. Like he is like like serious and his holiness is a consuming fire and he parted the heavens and came down this is this image of coming from a long way this is the lone ranger mounting his horse and riding across the pastures on his way to rescue like this is that moment and god charges in mounted on the cherubim by the way a lot of the imagery what what i was talking about earlier you see similar phrasing to some of this like he mounted the cherubim and flew um you sometimes see that phrase like in reference to a particular set of pagan gods, uh, Baal and another guy. Um, and he soared on the wings of the wind is another pagan god reference. And what David is doing here is he's taking their legends and he's saying, you know what, you think your gods are tough? Mine. My dad can beat up your dad. My god can beat up your god. And he soared on the wings of the wind, charging into rescue. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, on the dark, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Uh, a few years ago, I was at Mark's house for the 4th of July. Do you guys remember that 4th of July? I, I will always remember it because John said something in the middle of us starting to set off fireworks. He said, huh, the wind just changed directions. And then tornadoes hit. And I remember driving home after we set off all the fireworks because it was priorities, you know. Like, <laughs> and I was doing about 100 on the way home, and there was black in the sky. The kind of black in the sky you only see in Montana. Am I right? Mainly because most of y'all don't get out very much. But, like, it, is, it was a storm to end all storms. It was, it was something. And, like, there is something deeply terrifying about those kinds of rain clouds, isn't there? That wind and the thunder and lightning and the power of it all, it is powerful. God shows up and the clouds are a canopy about him because no man can look on God and live. God isn't some bull to show up and, and you know, that, that we can have an idol of later or, or a little bobblehead statue on our on our hood or whatever, on our dashboard. God is serious and, and we can't even see him without, like, dying. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced with hailstones and bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from the heavens. The voice of the Most High resounded. And the idea here is God showed up and he was powerful. And he wasn't just powerful, he was terrifying powerful, right? Um, I read this and I, honestly, I could only think of 80s pro wrestling. Like, <laughs> this, this intense, powerful, terrifying, righteous approach for salvation. And the amazing thing is, like, there's this great spot in Isaiah, no, it's Elijah, um, where Elijah says he wants to see God, and God um, sends a storm, and the storm cracks the mountains. He sends an earthquake, and he sends a flood, and then he sends a whisper. And God was in the whisper. 
Um, we look for this kind of salvation because we're people. We look for, for some hero to, to come along and, and take over the government and set things right or, or some, you know, whatever. Like we look for this strength and power in this world. But honestly, these things are under God's command. Um, Christ commanded the storm from the boat in the same way as God commands the storms from, from above in the psalm. And, and at the end of the day, God's greatest salvation, it showed up in the whisper when Christ was born in a manger in Bethlehem and when he breathed his last and cried out at his finish on the cross. Like this great and powerful thing, like part of what we as believers have to do is adjust our perspective and understand this salvation, it comes in the quiet. It comes in Christ cutting the cords of death around us, tying them to himself and taking our place because what we deserve is what he got. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemy. With great bolts of lightning, he routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare. At your rebuke, Lord, at the blast of breath from your nostrils, um, Again, we have this powerful image of nature and like the laying open of the sea. Um, the sea oftentimes is depicted as God's enemy in the Old Testament because it is chaos. Um, it is often associated with death because it is chaos and you disappear beneath it and that's it. Um, I don't know if you've ever been out on a boat in a storm, but it is an easy thing to understand. Water is scary. Um, and the idea here is he lays the valleys of the sea. He like tosses the sea open and underneath it. And there's some like... Uh, there's some uh, um, Exodus stuff happening here, too, by the way. Um, I really want to do this Romans passage, but I'm not. Oh, look, we have ten till. It's... <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, real quick, this is Romans. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I'm going to add a couple in here. Uh, the brokenness in the world around us. Our own, like, struggles with the flesh, our, our fears of tomorrow, our, oh, what happens if everything stops working, our dystopian fiction, our other nonsense, like the nasty things that people say on the news about us, whatever, none of it. As it is written, for your sake, we will face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Gotta love Paul. That was all one sentence. Um, <laughs> in the Old Testament, he shows up in the clouds. In the New Testament, he shows up in Christ. There is no less strength in it. Christ shows up and he rescues us. Christ shows up and he is the biggest, toughest guy on the street who stands behind us. 
is the one who rescues us in everything from ourselves, from our brokenness, from our sin, from our stony hearts. Um, Mind you, this is written by Paul, who had his head cut off not long after writing that. But as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor, a Lutheran pastor, who was sent to a concentration camp for speaking out openly against Hitler and being involved in plots to assassinate him and some other stuff. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer from the concentration camp was doing a Bible study, and they announced, hey, it's your time. He gets up to go be hanged, and he says, this is the end for me, but it is also only the beginning. You can never be separated from the love of God in Christ. Someone might hang you or cut off your head or or throw you in jail or take everything you have. And honestly, we live in a comfortable culture. Like people might call you names here, but so what? Like none of that stuff can assault God. None of it can take away from what God has. His power, nothing, nothing. What do we do? Well, we need to own that. We need to know his power. We need to know that he's sovereign and has authority over all things. We need to know his strength. We need to know that not a hair can fall from our heads without his will being a part of it. Uh, we need to know that he's willing to care for us. We need to know these things. And how do you know those things? You read the scriptures and you come to know God better. How do I know my wife so well? I talk to her and I listen to her. My hearing's kind of messed up, but. <laughs> But I, I do hear her sometimes. That's how we know. Like, we have to know these things, and we have to know them not like we know facts in a book, but like how we know that the sun will rise in the morning, right? How we know that you can charge up the stairs, and Dad is going to be there in bed, and he's going to get up, and he's going to fix everything that the thunder is threatening. That's how you need to know it, like a little child. Some suggestions. This is a great psalm, man. We need to read this one over and over and over and over again. Meditate on it. Think about the words. Digest them. Savor them. There is power in this. Um, Also, Romans 18, 31 to 39 is the passage I just read, man. Like, own this stuff. This is one that you could put in front of you and read every day and say, you know what? It doesn't matter how bad today goes. Nothing will separate me. It doesn't matter how bad I screw up. Christ still died for me and still saves me. It doesn't matter how hard I struggle or how much I feel hopeless and helpless and empty. Christ is still there. And just because my feelings change doesn't mean he does. A couple of really good books. The Passion of Jesus Christ by John Piper. Um, and the Cross of Christ by uh, John Stott are two that I would recommend. I think one of them is on the window outside my office. You could steal it, and I wouldn't even know. Or just take it, because you can have it if you want it. Um, and it's a daily meditation on the cross and what it means and the passion that Christ brought. And as you read that and understand what Christ went through and the passion he brought, you can understand God will never abandon you. My challenge for you this week, like we've gone through all of the gross stuff, all of the specifics, but my challenge for you as we go forward is um, is to realize that God is making that grand entrance in your life. That in Christ, he has showed up and he has saved. And that to ignore that would be a little like, you know, snidely whiplash standing next to the maiden tied to the train tracks and the music comes and the Lone Ranger shows up and you say, hey, Lone Ranger, I think I can handle this one. You just turn around and go the other way, right? Like, I'd be insane. But many of us do this with Christ. When he offers to save us, when he offers to deliver us, when he offers to reform our hearts and make us new, we say, yeah, I think I got this one. I can manage. 
Submit to Christ. Allow him to rescue us. Not even allow him. Recognize that he has rescued us and jump in. Like, be a part of it. I'm going to close in prayer and I'll let you go. Since we are ten minutes early. Um, (laughs) Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to recognize that your son... Your son charges in and rescues us when we are the least deserving, Lord. Um, the scriptures tell us that, that when we were still helpless, when we were still dead in our sins, when we were your enemies, Christ died for the unrighteous. Lord God, this heroic thing that Jesus did on my behalf, help me to live up to it. Help me to, to submit to Christ. Help me to be, to be rescued by him day after day. And when I recognize that the the water is rising around me and that, that Christ is there to save me. Help me to, help me to not critique it or say, you know what, I think I'd rather try and swim out of this flood myself. In Christ's holy name I pray. Amen. Happy National Ice Cream Day, guys. <laughs>